at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to read down to verse 17. But for the sake of context, I want us to back up to verse 9, and we'll read down to verse 17. Paul now addressing this um, congregation of believers in Rome says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then our passage this morning, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, many years ago, I was at an event and was talking to some of the women who were working the event about a recent uh, adoption dinner that we had had uh, for a crisis pregnancy center. And in the course of my conversation with one of the women... Um, I'll never forget, she blurted out, I, I really love the, the idea of adoption, provided I could ensure that the child looked just like me. I, I, I could not believe she verbalized that, although probably everybody thinks those things. But what that revealed was that she didn't understand the nature of adoption in the physical realm, Neither did she understand the great blessing of adoption in the spiritual realm. Those two things are intricately related because the Bible brings forth the doc doctrine of adoption as, if we could say this cautiously this morning, the chief blessing that believers receive from God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what I mean that she didn't understand the doctrine of adoption in the physical realm or in the familial realm is that it's evident to anyone who has ever been in a congregation with families who have adopted or who are themselves adopted or who have adopted children that one of the things that starts to happen as the adopted child grows and develops in that home that that child inevitably, whether he or she wants to or not, begins to take on the family likeness of the parents who have adopted them. I remember this hitting me as a, a very young believer. We were in a congregation in which the minister had adopted a daughter, and I didn't know for a, a, a period of time that she had been adopted because she looked just like her parents, 
She had the mannerisms of her parents. She talked like her parents. And there was nothing about her that would have indicated that she was not a biological child. And in fact, that gave me a greater appreciation for the fact that it's not being a biological child, it's being a true child in that home that, that begins to work in that child in order to produce the family likeness. Now, I don't think that's just coincidental that that so often happens in the, the physical realm, in the realm of families, but that God had purposed that because God had purposed that he was going to adopt us out of the fallen family of Adam and bring us into the divine family through Jesus Christ. That's really what Paul is still expounding, beginning all the way back in chapter 5, verse 12, when he sets out that Adam Christ parallel, and he says that we were all in Adam, under the condemnation of Adam, um, the, the transmission of Adam's sin coming to us, and death and judgment spreading to all men, but now a, another Adam, a last Adam has come, and by one act of obedience, he has, he has uh, taken the transgressions of those under the first Adam to himself. And he has taken the judgment on himself and he has established righteousness and life and blessing freely by his grace. We saw that all men are either in Adam or Christ. There's no other option. There's no neutrality. There's no third way. And as Paul expounds that, he will explain that if you're in Adam, you're under the condemnation of the law which leads to eternal judgment, you're under the power of sin, and you're in the flesh. All of those things are a bundle deal. But if you're in Christ by faith, you are no longer under condemnation, you are justified. You have been set free from the power of sin. Um, you have been made slaves of righteousness. You have been raised up to newness of life. You have been set free from the power of sin and you are heading for eternal life. And that's a bundle deal. You're either in Adam, under the curse of the law, under the power and dominion of sin, in the flesh and heading for death, or you are in Christ with all of those blessings and benefits. And what, what Paul is doing now is not moving away from that, that contrast between Adam and Christ and everything related, he is now carrying on even further the blessings of being in the Lord Jesus. And the chief blessing, if I can say this this morning, the chief blessing, and you may not think this, and for a long time the Christian church did not think this, through the better part of the early church and the medieval period, the Christian church did not understand that the chief blessing of belonging to the Lord Jesus is that you have received the spirit of Christ and that you have received the, the spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father, that we have been brought into the divine family. Now, notice that Paul opens this chapter back in chapter, verse 1 with that great statement, for all who are justified, there is now no condemnation in Christ. There is now no condemnation. We're not waiting, hoping that maybe there won't be condemnation. There is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ. 
But now Paul is intent on carrying that out and explaining what family likeness those who are in Christ have taken to themselves. What does it look like if you're in Christ? How do you walk? How do you talk? How do you carry yourself? Which family likeness are you showing? If we are still in the flesh, then we show the family likeness of Adam. But if we are in the spirit, we will show more and more the family likeness of Christ. And Paul has already sort of introduced this to us when he has contrasted the flesh and the spirit. And he has told the believers here in Rome, in verse 9, in no certain terms, you are, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, Paul is going to essentially answer the question this morning. How do I know? And this is the big question. If you are totally uninterested, listen carefully, because this is crucial that you understand the nature of what Paul's doing. Paul is wanting you to ask the question this morning, how do I know? How do I know that I'm in Christ? How do I know that I'm not in the flesh? How do I know that all these things are true for me? And and notice he tells us in verses 12 and 13, he says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, I want us to consider two things as we look at verses 12 through 17 this morning. First, I want us to consider the leading of the Spirit, what Paul speaks as being led by the Spirit in verses 12 through 15. And then I want us to consider the witness, the testimony of the Spirit in verses 16 and 17, the leading of the Spirit and the witness of the Spirit. Very simply, everything falling under those two things. We'll notice that Paul moves from telling us we're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And then he gives a great therefore. He says, therefore, we are debtors. Now, what's interesting about what Paul does in verse 12 is he never explicitly tells us what we are debtors to or who we are debtors to, but he tells us what we are not debtors to. This is so interesting. Paul will inevitably be telling us we are debtors to live according to the Spirit. He is saying that, but he is saying it by way of negation. He says, therefore, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If Christ has redeemed us, if he has set us free from the curse of the law, if he has broken the power of sin, if he has raised us up to newness of life in him, if he has given us and guaranteed us the victory over our sin in the resurrection on the last day ultimately, and if he has given us his spirit to indwell us, then we are debtors. We have a debt and an obligation that we must pay. Now, what Paul says in verse 12 can be coupled with what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. You all should know chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, by the mercies of God, 
present your bodies. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable gift of God. So, what Paul says there in expanded form in chapter 12, verse 1, he says here in chapter 8, verse 12, we are debtors not to live according to the flesh, for if we live according to the flesh, we will die, but if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. Now, Paul will tell us something very interesting here after making that statement. He will say, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, Paul is doing something very wonderful. The Holy Spirit is doing something very wonderful in this passage. He is telling us what the hallmark of our faith is. Um, Sinclair Ferguson um, says... We become evidently members of the family of God. But the old family genes have to be destroyed. There's a struggle of the adopted child to enter fully into all the privileges of his or her adoption as a child of God. And the struggle, to use Paul's word, is to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, what Paul says in verse 12... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If by the Spirit we mortify the deeds of the flesh, we will live. He likens and says in shorthand that that is the leading of the Spirit of God who leads us as the sons of God. You see what he's doing? He's saying, if we've been redeemed, if we're trusting in Christ, then the hallmark, a primary hallmark that we are children of God is that we begin to bear the family likeness. We begin to look more and more like the Lord Jesus. Now, let me say this this morning. Paul is sort of doing two things simultaneously in this passage. On one hand, he is telling us about the call to us to pursue holiness as the fruit of our redemption, And he is also weaving into that the doctrine of the privilege of our adoption as sons of God. The two things go together. Um, If you could go through this chapter, and if you could specifically go through the verses of this chapter from verse 12 to 29, you would see these things developing together. And you would see the preeminence of the doctrine of divine sonship, the blessing of having been adopted into God's family. Listen to this. In verse 12, look there with me, in verse 12, Paul calls the Christians in Rome brothers. Brothers. Now, I know some of you have been in Baptist fellowships. There are many times I wish I could be a Baptist because I could forget everybody's name and just call them brother or sister. It is the greatest pastoral trick that was ever invented. All you have to do is say, brother and sister, you don't even have to know their name. That's not what Paul's doing. Neither am I putting down Baptist. I'm just saying that's a phenomenon of our day. Paul is is loading in this, it is a pregnant term. He is loading into it everything he is about to unpack about our adoption and our sonship and being part of the family of God. 
In verse 12, he calls them brothers. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 14, notice this. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then in verse 15, notice he mentions that the spirit of adoption, the spirit is the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then notice verse 16. The spirit testifies that we are children of God. Notice verse 17. If children, then heirs. Notice verse 19. Go further out of our text. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. On that great last day, the resurrection, the revealing of the sons of God. And then notice verse 21. Paul says the creation was subjected to bondage until it obtains freedom of the glory of the children of God in the resurrection, the manifestation of the children of God. And then verse 23, Paul says we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons. And then notice, finally, verse 29. It's as if Paul sums everything up here. He says, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see that verse 12 and 29 are bookends. What is God doing? He is, he is reworking in you the image that was lost in the fall through Christ by virtue of you being adopted into his family and he's given you the spirit of adoption who is committed to, first of all, leading you. And the leading of the Spirit, you have to listen very carefully because there are many mistaken notions about this. The leading of the Spirit is not some mystical thing where in some sort of third-wave, charismatic setting, people would ask, are you a Spirit-led Christian? Are you experiencing the leading of the Spirit, some kind of personal guidance in which God is is moving you around and, and revealing things to you and telling you things? The leading of the Spirit, very simply put, is the work of the Spirit in sanctifying the people of God, enabling us to put sin to death in our life. You'll remember the way the psalmist speaks of the Lord in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and one of the the things that he tells us our, our covenant Lord as shepherd does is that he leads us in paths of righteousness. Now, there are two things to keep in mind as we look at verses 12 through 14. The first thing is that there is a real call to you to put sin to death in your life and to me. There is a real call. Paul doesn't say, well, you're really weak. Embrace your weaknesses because you just can't do it. We hear that kind of preaching all the time today. We are weak. We're going to talk about our weakness. But there can be an excuse for not putting sin to death in our lives. And we can say, well, don't be afraid to embrace your weakness. And what we mean is don't be afraid to not repent of our sin. That's really what people are saying in a kind of circuitous way so often when they talk about embracing your weakness. Paul says, be serious about understanding that you are a debtor to put sin to death. Now, if you were 
I don't even think there are Christian bookstores anymore, but if there was one, there were in like the 90s and early 2000s. If you went into a Christian bookstore and you, you said, I want to find a book that is going to tell me more about what it means for me to put sin to death in my life, you probably are going to be very hard-pressed to find a single book on that. There is one in church history that you should read. It is John Owen's The Mortification of Sin. You've probably heard of that. The Mortification of Sin. Um, Owen says in there that famous quote, you've heard no doubt, "Be, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And in that book, uh, the descriptive way in which Owen speaks about the extent to which believers should go in seeking to put sin to death is that we should take every means possible to try to eradicate those sins that so easily beset us. That, That we should be diligent. The first uprising of pride thinking, I should be seen more, I should be heard more. The first uprising of envy, well, I don't know why they get those privileges and I don't. The first uprising of bitterness or lust or anger or greed, covetousness, impatience, uh, what Jerry Bridges calls those, those respectable sins that, that we so often just let unchecked. Owen uses the descriptive language of strangling suffocating those sins, not letting them have reign in our hearts or in our actions. Um, we are to be, we are to be uh, decidedly committed to seeking to put sin to death in our lives. Now, you've heard that call. You know that's a hallmark of being a child of God. One of the glorious things, though, Paul doesn't say, and that's all up to you. In fact, what he does in verse 14 is he explains, and in verse 13, that it's only by the Spirit leading us into holiness. Now, let me help you understand what what Paul is saying here. He is not saying, he is not saying, if you say, you know what, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be more disciplined, I'm going to keep a tighter schedule, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, You'll mortify sin. He's not saying that. That's how a lot of people think about mortification. If I'm just more organized and rigid and this and that. No, he's saying that that Christ, the Lord Jesus, has poured out on us the same spirit that he had. When he ascended on high, he poured the spirit out to indwell us. And that what the spirit is always doing, if you have the spirit, he is always seeking to lead us into paths of righteousness and away from sin. Now, it doesn't mean that we always submit to the leading of the Spirit. Paul will say that it is possible for us to grieve the Spirit, to quench the Spirit. We know in our experience those many times we failed. Why did I do this again? I wanted to mortify this. I did this again. I spoke to my spouse this way. I was impatient with my child. I looked at this person and lusted. I did this. Why did I do that again? And it's not so much that the Spirit is not powerful enough to work in us, but if we're true believers, we have this battle, the Spirit pulling us toward holiness and our old flesh pulling us back toward sin. And what Paul is saying is, listen, when you understand the privilege of having the Spirit of adoption 
and you understand that what his work is is to make you more and more like Christ, then we will less and less want to resist his leading and we will more and more want that influence in our lives if we're true believers. Our hearts want that. The true believer hears this and instead of feeling condemned by his failure, he says, yes, I want more of that in my life. The unbeliever hears this and says, well, I better do better. Paul is not saying that. He is telling us that the Spirit of God leads the children of God in the work of sanctification. Now, uh, listen to this. John Owen, to sum up what I just said, Owen said, mortification is putting sin to death from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention Unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul of all false religion in the world. Did you miss that? Don't miss it. A desire to mortify sin in self-strength by ways of self-invention to an end of self-righteousness is the soul of all false religion in the world. It's the picture of those monks in uh, the Middle Ages who would withdraw from society and withdraw from active service and withdraw from everything, thinking if we just separate ourselves from everything out there, we'll be holy. That's false religion. Now, here's the glorious news this morning. Paul does not say this privilege of the Holy Spirit leading believers to put sin to death and to walk in newness of life is the unique privilege of a special few who are super pious and holy. Listen to this. This is glorious. B.B. Um, uh, Warfield says this, the leading of the Spirit is not some peculiar gift reserved for special sanctity and granted as a reward of high merit. It is the common gift poured out on all of God's children. You have the same Holy Spirit leading you to put sin to death and to walk uprightly as I do. Every believer, it is the common gift that God has given us his spirit as the spirit of sonship. Listen to this. Um, Warfield goes on, it is the common gift poured out on all God's children to meet their common need and is the evidence of their common weakness and their common unworthiness. You see... The very fact that we need the Holy Spirit to do this shows that we do not have it in ourselves. But that God has given us the agent of sanctification who, whether we want him to or not, is committed to leading us in holiness and to putting sin to death. That means we should be very sensitive when we are tempted to sin. We feel our flesh rising up. And the Holy Spirit, who always works through the word, because it is his sword, he has breathed it out. And he bears that word that we need to hear at that moment to mind. And we, by the word and the spirit, put that sin to death and turn from it. We have, we have experienced the leading of the Holy Spirit. We have experienced that in our lives. Now, let me say this this morning. If you're anything like me, and you're a very touchy-feely kind of person. You want the, the leading of the Spirit to be this, I just feel so full of the Holy Spirit, it feels so great. That's not how it works. When you recognize a temptation to rise up on your flesh, 
and you resist that by the word of God, the spirit of God is leading you and working in you to resist that temptation and to put it to death. Isn't that marvelous? Whenever I recognize I need to mortify this sin, that is, that is a proof of the assurance that I am a son of God and the spirit of God is working in me. And whenever I fail to do it, and I have a sense of condemnation because I am guilty, and I remember the gospel, and I go back to the Lord, and I confess that sin, and the Holy Spirit is working in me, desires for new obedience. That is proof that I am a son of God, and that the Spirit of God lives in me, and that I more and more want to follow his lead into holiness, and away from sin and unrighteousness. Now, there is much more that we could say about the leading of the Spirit. But I want you to consider with me the hinge of this passage. I want you to consider with me verse 15. And here we really see that the leading of the Spirit is in what the Holy Spirit produces in us, in our spirits, what he does inside of us. Notice this. Uh, The apostle says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, every single person on this planet is motivated by one of two spirits. Either we have a spirit of bondage under the law in Adam, and we are terrified of God, and that's what the old writers called servile fear. We think like a servant or an orphan, and everything is about trying to placate God, and if I just do good enough this time, he'll accept me. That is what Paul calls a spirit of bondage, because all it produces is corruption, and it never gives power unto holiness. But the the contrary spirit is when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, we have been given not a spirit of bondage to fear, but a spirit of adoption by sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So that if we're indwelt by the spirit of the Son, the cry of our heart is that cry to address God as our Father, which is the greatest privilege, and it shows that we understand the liberty that we have been brought into through the grace of Jesus Christ, the glorious liberty that we've been brought into. Some of you will have read J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and you'll remember in that book that Packer makes that statement along these lines, if you truly want to know how much someone makes of the Christian faith, find out how much they make of the sense of God as their father. If you really want to know how much someone makes of the Christian faith, find out how much they make of the privilege of knowing God as their father. You see, there's no greater privilege. When we were guilty, when we were... Um, when we were unrighteous, when we were under the wrath of God, we were guilty before God as a judge. And yet God justified us. He vindicated us. He forgave us. He accepted us as righteous. He, he, he exonerated us by finding his son guilty for us. 
in the divine court. And yet the glorious thing is, as one of my uh, good friends says, that, that what God does in the work of redemption through Christ is he takes us as guilty criminals from the law court, he vindicates us, and he brings us from the law court to the living room. Now, I know this much about my own heart, and so I know it's true of yours, is that you and I do not think of God as our Father in the right way as we ought to, or else we would live lives that look a lot more as if we are bearing the family image. Because when we forget that we have received the spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the same spirit that Jesus had, and you think about an infant, when an infant begins to, to mutter words and, and then the, the very young toddler begins to speak one of the first words that a newborn child utters is, is daddy, father, dada, abba. And, and what Paul's saying is when there is new life in a believer, he or she utters those words from the heart. And the big problem, I'm going to say this this morning, if you are desirous of being more free in life and feeling like you're not, one of the big maybe, and probably you've forgotten some of these privileges, that you have already been adopted by faith in Christ. You are already sons and daughters. Jack Miller did a great service to the church in the 20th century by explaining that all people act either like orphans or they act like sons. An orphan does whatever for self-preservation, for position, for a paycheck. They just do whatever. They float around. They move around. They're, 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 they're self-controlled. They do whatever they want to do. They're oriented by preservation. But a son is willing to sit at the feet of the father and listen to the father, to take instruction, to know and understand the love that the father has. Think about the way the Apostle John, who is the Apostle of Love, speaks about the blessing of this sonship. He says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Why does John lead that off with the word behold? Because we are so often not beholding the manner of love the Father has for us. John says, Behold, look at what manner of love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. John says, now we are children of God, but we do not yet know what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. You see, sonship results in the restored family image in those that have received that blessing of adoption. And who are, as Paul says, led by the Spirit, I want us to secondly consider, and very briefly, the witness of the Spirit, because these things are intricately connected. Notice he moves now to verse 16, and having told us about the leading of the Spirit, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I've already noted that there are many misconceptions about what we call the leading of the Spirit. It's not a mystical um, audible, supernatural, carry me along by way of guidance. It is a enabling me to put sin to death and do what is pleasing to God as I'm led in those right ways through his word. 
So there are many misconceptions about the testimony of the Spirit here spoken of. When, when Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, we are not meant to think that the Holy Spirit is whispering in your ear, you're a child of God. That's not what he does, ever. I'm sorry, if you think that's what it is, I'm here to disappoint you and help you. Understand, he does, that's not what Paul's saying. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. He testifies that we really are the children of God, A, because he's leading us into holiness and enabling us to put sin to death, and B, by enabling us to have confidence to cry out to God as our Father. Notice, that's what Paul says. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God immediately after saying the spirit of adoption is the one by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, let me say this this morning. None of this is by human effort. It's all by grace. Um, no one decides to be adopted into a particular family. No one does. It is an act of compassion, mercy, love, and it is administered from the parent to the adopted child. What Paul's saying is God has purposed to adopt you into his family. Now, this has implications for everything. It, it not only has implications for how we live our lives morally, it has huge implications for that, as Paul's saying, but it has implications for how we view the entire world around us. I'll never forget being on a resort island with my best friend as a brand new Christian. And um, this island had a lot of areas you couldn't go to because it was privatized. And I was speaking to my best friend about it and, and saying, you know, um, must be nice for people just to own all this private stuff. And he said, I don't know, my father owns all of this. And that was not cheap or tongue-in-cheek. He understood. In fact, notice, notice what Paul is going to say about the blessings of being a child of God in verse 17. Notice this. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is Paul saying? If this is true for you, it not only means that you are led by the Spirit, it not only means that the Spirit is testifying that you really are a child of God, but that he is guaranteeing for you the inheritance of everything with Christ. Now, that should make a world of difference about how we pursue sanctification in our life. Because if I really believe these things, and if they're really true about me, and I really know that there is a prospect of inheriting everything as a child of God and a joint heir with Christ, that he is going to share with us everything that's his, the new heavens and the new earth, the world, life, death, all things, all are yours, Paul says, and you are Christ. Christ is God's. If that's true, what impact should that have on us going all the way back and wanting to mortify sin in our life now? so that we bear the image of what we really are until we receive what God has promised to give us. Do you all see that sweep from verse 12 to 17? 
In the here and now, we are called to be diligent in putting sin to death. Not because we're trying to gain God's favor, but because God has adopted us, given us the spirit of adoption, is bearing witness in us even as he leads us and has secured for us an everlasting inheritance. When we really believe that, the appropriate response is to say, how can I let this sin continue on in my life unmortified? Or these sins, whatever they may be. Um, By the way, when you really are committed to mortifying sin in your life, um, you stop looking out at others and finding all the faults with them. Because you got plenty of sin to mortify in your own life. Until you're with your Father in Heaven and made perfectly like Christ. Um, Up until this point in Romans, everything's been the privileges, what God has done, what Christ has done, what grace is doing. And now God says, now let this come home. In what is really the first functional application, we are to be diligent to put sin to death in our life. Um, I want to read you Warfield's closing thoughts here. He says, is there a conflict of sin and holiness in you? The very fact that there is conflict in you is the charter of your salvation. Where the Holy Spirit is not, there is no conflict. Sin rules. Undisputed Lord over the life. That there is conflict in you, that you do not rest in complacency in your sin, is a proof that the Spirit of God is within you. Notice that he doesn't say, if you never sin. He says, if there is conflict, if you are seeking to put that sin to death, it is proof that the Spirit of God is within you, leading you to holiness. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. That is the purport of this message to us. Now, I want to say this this morning, whether you are visiting or whether you are a member, there is no greater word that we need to hear this morning than this word. We are to be absolutely vigorous in seeking to put sin to death by the Spirit who indwells us. And we have all the resources to do it. You have the third person of the Godhead pulling you into holiness and away from sin. Constantly convicting you. Constantly working on you by his word saying, this is the way, walk in it. And we are to be sensitive to that leading. And we are not to quench him and grieve him. But when we do, we are to go back and ask the Lord to forgive us and to say, Lord, lead me into paths of righteousness. Make me talk and walk and look like a child of God. Now, if you're not interested in any of this, then none of this is for you because you must repent of your sins and look to the Lord Jesus by faith. 
Because only those who are in Christ have the Spirit of God. Only those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation are sealed with the Spirit, know the leading of the Spirit, know the witness of the Spirit. And so if if there is no conflict in you, if you are just living in open and unrepentant sin, just giving over to whatever desires you have in your heart, then you need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and you need to cry out to the Lord to have mercy on you. But if you're in Christ, this is true for you. Remember what Warfield said. This is true as a common gift to every single believer. Every believer is indwelt by the Spirit. Every believer is being led by the Spirit. Every believer has the witness of the Spirit, bearing witness that we are children of God. And so I want to encourage you this morning as you look at your life and where you are, that you would be vigorous and rigorous in pursuing the mortification of your sin, that you would make use of every means God has given you, that you would not play with sin, that you would not toy with it, that you would not think, oh, it's okay, it's all grace, but that you would say, God has given me his spirit, has made me his child, and has given me the ability to put this sin to death, and may God do that in your life until you realize the full blessing of having been made a son or a daughter of God in glory, inheriting all things. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for these precious truths. We do ask, our God, that you would make us serious about putting sin to death in our life. You would forgive us, Lord, for the many times in which we have toyed with sin, in which we have allowed it to go unchecked. We thank you for the leading of your spirit.